Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 100, The Long Peace and the Brutal War. So it's only been a couple days since the last episode was uploaded. I'm getting everything for October out early because I'm about to go to the U.S. for the rest of the month. But hey, here we are. It's episode 100. I mean, okay, to be fair, the real episode 100 was actually two episodes ago because of the intro episode that was kind of numbered zero and that special episode I released about Game of Thrones that one time. But regardless, we're celebrating now. It's episode 100. It has been more than six years since I started this project. And without a doubt, this has been, I mean, one of the most fulfilling and important things I've done in my entire life. And I can really attribute all of that to you all, the support, the incredible support you've given me. Uh, I mean, you you all just send me the nicest emails and messages. I got one the other day from a couple who described spending, you know, finding the podcast and spending a whole weekend listening to it while only like leaving the apartment for food, which was humbling to say the least. So I mean, yeah, just thanks to all of you. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I do anticipate this whole podcast will probably take maybe around another 100 episodes and another couple years before we're done. Uh, That's just my kind of very rough calculation looking at the history we're going to cover. But I think by the end, this will end up being about 200 episodes, around 100 hours of content. So no small project, but uh, that is it. Uh, also mentioned, yeah, no new patrons, but it's only been a couple days, so no surprises there. And let's get into it. So last time, we left off following a devastating Ottoman defeat by the Persians, not once, but twice, leading to the Persians re-establishing dominance of the Caucasus and pushing the border further west. This also allowed Russia to move in and gain a small victory and expand further south towards the Black Sea. However, when the Austrians got involved, they were utterly defeated, losing Belgrade and the Kingdom of Serbia to the Ottomans. Meanwhile, Ottoman subjects are fleeing the effects of the empire's decentralization as local nobles begin to act with impunity against their subjects, leading to small uprisings in places like Razgrad as more and more Bulgarians travel outside of their borders, seeking aid against the Ottomans in European courts. However, when the Bulgarians actually did rise up in favor of the Ottomans, they were, for the nth time, brutally crushed. Still, the Ottomans are looking weak as we reach the middle of the 18th century. Now, first, I want to talk about some reforms that were going on around this time in Wallachia and Moldavia, led by the Fenariot Konstantin Mavrokodatos. As I mentioned in a previous episode, he would rule Wallachia six times and Moldavia four times between 1730 and 1769. Now, During those reigns, he implemented reforms inspired by what he saw of Austrian rule in some territory that had been returned to Wallachia after the 1739 Treaty of Belgrade. In these reforms, he made taxation more indirect and allowed it to be paid quarterly instead of annually, kind of spreading out the tax burden. He also helped abolish serfdom in Wallachia in 1746 
and Moldavia in 1749. This meant that serfs or peasants could now move between the states, you know, the kind of regions within these territories, and of the boyars. So, uh, the, so if you're sort of working on one boyar's farm, you could actually move to another boyar's farm, whereas uh, traditionally serfs were forbidden from basically not only kind of advancing socially, but literally leaving the place where they grew up. Though, to be fair, the serfs did have to pay a fee when they moved. Now, slavery still did exist, but Mavrokodatos did forbid the separation of Roma slaves who were married. Uh, anyone familiar with more kind of uh, American institutions of slavery will be very familiar with the fact that often, you know, couples and children would be separated because they'd be sold off to different plantations that could be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away. And so, although slavery continued to exist, there were some small reforms to make it ever so slightly more humane, if you can say something about such an inhumane institution. Now, overall, his reforms were ironically kind of the opposite of what was happening in the rest of the Ottoman Empire. In his case, in Wallachian Moldavia, the power of the boyars was curtailed. Power was more centralized in the fenariots running these states, and the kind of overall administration of the states was more professionalized. Whereas, obviously, in the Ottoman Empire, power was being decentralized. And as it was decentralized, it was becoming, you could say, less professionalized, as the people running things basically had more free reign to kind of run things the way they felt like. Another general development during this period involved cultural movements in the Islamic world, which attempted to answer the question as to why the kind of Islamic world was gradually becoming weaker vis-a-vis the West. One prominent figure attempting to answer this was Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He preached that the solution was to return to the original teachings and the original kind of form of Islam. Now, chances are, if you paid attention to the news in the last, you know, two decades or so, you've heard of Wahhabism, because even today, it's a powerful fundamentalist form of Islam, which is effectively kind of the state religious ideology of Saudi Arabia, most famously. So, this is kind of the birth of Wahhabism. And yeah, again, if you're kind of familiar with uh, this, the, the way kind of Wahhabism functions today, you have some idea over what its ideology was. You know, back to the basics, old school Islam, that's what's going to make the Islamic world great. Now, in 1744, uh, he, this Wahhab guy made a pact with a man named Ibn Saud to effectively form a small emirate in which Wahhab would be in charge of religious matters while Saud would run military and political affairs. Now, I, you know, it's no big secret, I just mentioned Saudi Arabia because this tiny state, which initially was established in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula, soon began raiding Ottoman territory and would gradually grow into what is now Saudi Arabia. And effectively, that initial deal where Wahhabism is going to be the kind of religious ideology and the Al Saud family is going to run military and political affairs is still exactly how that state is run, you know, over two cent, two and a half centuries later. So uh, it's obviously a long standing alliance there. Now, in general, though, the years after the end of the Ottoman Persian War in 1746 were fairly quiet, despite, you know, the, this unrest in the Balkans and the Christian territories, despite some of this cultural changes and unrest happening in the Muslim territories. Now, there was occasional unrest resulting from, again, these increasingly empowered Ottoman officials abusing their power, but the empire as a whole was at peace. 
and this quiet extended until, in 1754, Sultan Mahmud I died of natural causes and was succeeded by his brother, who became Sultan Osman III, as the only two sons of Mahmud I had both died young. So there, there wasn't kind of a fight. It's not like his brother took over violently. He was the next in line. Now, likely in response to calls by people like Wahhab for kind of more traditional morality and a reflection of the feelings of the new sultan, the Ottoman state began passing laws which condemned immodest clothing, forced merchants to not wear furs, only sultans and viziers were evidently supposed to wear furs, and both Christians and Jews were forced to wear clothings and markers which would distinguish their religion. So again, you know, a lot of people, you know, particularly you hear about Bulgarian history, have the these ideas about uh, that that kind of say Christians and Jews were marked in this way by their clothing as being kind of an eternal thing that the the entire Ottoman period had this. But as we can see here, you know, this is actually a fairly late development in the history of the Ottoman Empire, and it's in response to this kind of increasing religious conservatism as an answer to declining Ottoman power. So just to give you kind of an idea of where that policy comes from, now. Osman III also happened to really hate music, so interestingly enough, musicians were banned from the palace. Though it should be pointed out that, you know, although I'm talking about the Ottoman government doing this and Osman's kind of personal feelings, despite, you know, he had some influence, but in general, he didn't really rule very much. He was still basically a figurehead and was more or less imprisoned in the Topkapı Palace. You know, we're still in an era of Ottoman history where the sultans are struggling to really exert their power, and increasingly sort of viziers, pashas, and local folks are running the show. Now, also, there were some military reforms resulting particularly from that French alliance, which I mentioned last time. Just a year into the reign of Osman III, a French officer named Baron de Tot arrived and began reforming the Ottoman artillery corps. Meanwhile, the gradual development of Bulgarian national consciousness was continuing as a Franciscan friar named Andrea Kacic Mišić published a historiographical work which talked extensively about the First and Second Bulgarian Empires. So as we're seeing, you know, there's more and more writings talking about these Bulgarian empires, about Bulgarian history. Now, these are still very elite works. It's not like very, very many people can read. Uh, it's not like these books are being kind of mass published, but these are early important kind of steps because these kind of elite pieces of culture about Bulgaria, you know, initially are only affecting essentially, you know, what 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 you could say what elites existed at the time, but that's the first step into you know, creating a more national consciousness among those elites, which then, as they kind of produce more culture of their own and start to speak and write about these things, can kind of filter down to more the average person. So this is the beginning of that long, long, decades-long process. Soon, though, that short reign of Osman III was over because, well, he was the brother of uh, the, the sultan who died of natural causes, so he was pretty old. And so he died at age 58, in 1757. He was replaced by his cousin, Mustafa III. Now, unlike his predecessors, Mustafa actually cared a lot about law and governance. Uh, he really wanted to be much more active. So, you know, we saw Osman had some activity, he had some influence over the government, but Mustafa was just a, a lot more you know, energetic, you could say. So, 
he wanted to really implement policy. He wanted to regulate monetary policy. He and he did that. He regulated, uh, you know, the supply of money. He worked to maintain grain silos and aqueducts for Constantinople, and well, you know, started to actually make the position of sultan a bit more influential. Though his early kind of the early years of his reign also did see an increase in violence in Bulgaria. So although the central power is trying to exert itself more that didn't have that much of an effect on the decentralized folks who were kind of causing this violence and these abuses in Bulgaria. And so those kept right on going. 1758 in particular saw Ottoman reports of Hajduk bands operating around Sofia. Remember, Hajduks are sort of uh, robbers, you could say. You know, sometimes they're looked at as sort of noble freedom fighters, other times as, you know, just common thieves, depending on, you know, how you're looking at them, where and when you're looking at them. But so there's there's more of this kind of unrest, this lawlessness around Sofia. The next year, 1759, saw unrest and mob violence around Nikopol on the Danube. 1760 saw similar unrest in southern Dobruja. And 1762 saw armed violence by people living around Kazanluk, which is in central Bulgaria. In 1766, bandits even attacked the Rila monastery itself. So clearly the combination of that more decentralized power allowing local Ottoman officials to act as they please, often leading to flagrant abuses of power, and what central authority really did exist, at this point really enforcing a more conservative and intolerant policies you know, all these things were combining to lead to a very substantial increase in violence and civil unrest in Bulgaria. As you can see, you know, hardly a year goes by where there isn't a major event. Now, while that element of Bulgarian consciousness and anti-Ottomanism was rising, that sort of general dissatisfaction, other events were also occurring, which would eventually contribute to the national revival movement. Also in 1762, Paisi Hilandarsky, finally completed his life's work, which we now know as his Slavo-Bulgarian history. And, you know, we now know this was actually the second history of Bulgaria to be written. Until recently, it was believed to be the first ever history of Bulgaria to be written, but that doesn't detract from its importance. You know, it, it will take a while for this book to get copied and start to be passed around, and, and we'll talk about that process as it happens. But ultimately, this book is, is really different than the previous pieces of culture which talked about the history, you know, previous Bulgarian history. And I'm going to talk about that now because, you know, I've got a copy of it. And you know, the introduction of this copy, which was published on its 250th anniversary, pointed out, quote, the appearance of Slavic Bulgaria history was not followed by international pronouncements. It did not challenge the awakened consciousness of civilized Europe. Slowly and strenuously, its spiritual load took to the anonymous paths from Mount Athos, which is where it was written, to the minds of modest and nameless contemporaries and followers discovered under the cover of double slavery in Bulgarian territories. End quote. Now, you've heard me talk about my disagreement with the use of the word slavery, and I'm not quite sure what he means by double slavery, what the second one refers to, but the bigger point here is that this quote really gives you an idea of how this book's influence spread very gradually. And in fact, it was only in the 1830s and 1840s that it really gained substantial attention. But no doubt, its publication remained a milestone. Now, this is especially true because, you know, not just because of the history it taught, but because the book addressed Bulgarians directly in a very modern way as a national group. 
and in doing so, Hilandarsky deliberately attempted to use his work to encourage Bulgarian national consciousness, which is not something we've really seen anyone do up to this point. To give you an example, here's a quote from the introduction written by Hilandarsky. He wrote, quote, Be careful now, O you readers and hearers, O you Bulgarian people, who love your kinfolk and your Bulgarian fatherland, and take them to heart, and who wish to discover and understand what is known about the Bulgarian people, about your fathers, forefathers, and kings, patriarchs and saints, how they lived and fared. It is useful and profitable for you to know what is held as certain about your kindred and language, as other peoples know their language and history, and every literate person among them can relate their history and is proud of his race and tongue. Therefore, I put down in writing what is known about your race and language. Read and know, so that you should not be mocked and reproached by other tribes and nations. But some people, who do not wish to know about their Bulgarian ancestors, and they turn to a foreign culture and a foreign language, and they neglect their Bulgarian language, and learn to read and speak Greek instead, and they deem it shameful to call themselves Bulgarians. End quote. Now, it continues on like that for some time. That, that could have been a far longer quote. But you, you could see there, he, he admonishes Bulgarians for being ashamed of themselves, for believing that they don't have a substantial history, and for idolizing the Greeks instead. And remember, at this time, you know, the, the Greeks do dominate the Orthodox Church. Um, you know, the Greeks, as Phanariots, are kind of running Moldavia and Wallachia. Uh, the Greeks just are, are far more prominent. People in the West have all heard of Greece. Well, okay, not all. The elites of the West have heard of ancient Greece, are familiar with the ancient Greek writers and things. You know, Greece has this real cultural cachet that Bulgaria does not have. And Paisi really... I mean, it's it's surprising. Again, I said this is modern. He addresses that very directly. Uh, and this is just not something you, you tend to see in the other writings of this time. Now, three years after that work was completed, Hilandarsky met a man named Stoiko Vladislavov, who was a priest who was working as a teacher at the time, as well as a writer, in the town of Kotel. Now, Hilandarsky showed Vladislavov the manuscript, and Vladislavov made the first copy of it. And thus, the slow, slow spread of the Slavo-Bulgarian history began. Now, around this time, though, Sultan Mustafa III, while still maintaining his alliance with France, was exploring new diplomatic options. In particular, he was a great admirer of Frederick the Great of Prussia as a you know, military commander and as a ruler. Now, for that reason, Mustafa attempted to form an anti-Austrian alliance with Prussia, but this was rejected. Still, in spite of the rejection, the two countries did establish formal diplomatic relations, and the Ottomans began acquiring military advisors from Prussia, which was the start of a long kind of Ottoman-German friendship and alliance, which will go on until basically the end of the Ottoman Empire. Another part of Mustafa's reforms were religious in nature. Beginning in 1766, he started centralizing the religious authority of orthodoxy, first by banning the Serbian Patriarchate of Pech, and then by dismantling the Bulgarian archbishopric of Ohrid the very next year. This, by the way, was a church institution that had existed from the time of the First Bulgarian Empire, which, you know, you'll remember, the First Bulgarian Empire at this point had been destroyed about seven centuries earlier. And so, you know, this, this Bulgarian uh, archbishopric was well over seven centuries old. And I just mentioned, right, that you know, the Greeks had a lot more cultural cachet because they dominated the Orthodox Church. Well, 
that was about to get even worse because now, you know, this authority was placed under for both the kind of Serbian and Bulgarian churches that were dismantled. All of their authority was placed under the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople, which basically meant that power was now geographically and, you know, kind of culturally more centralized in the Greeks than it had been before. Now, while all of this was going on, though, far larger events were at foot uh, outside of the Ottoman realm. In Russia, now Catherine the Great had become empress all the way back in 1726 and had been working on gradually expanding Russia's influence. In the late 1760s, these efforts were focusing on Poland. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had been in decline for more than a century at this point and was now firmly within the Russian sphere of influence. Seeing their country and their Catholic faith be put in a very subservient role to Russia, well, you could say this was too much for many in Poland. And so an alliance of peasants and nobles in a city called Bar, which is now in Ukraine near the Ottoman border, uh, rebelled and formed a confederation in 1768. The Russian army stepped in and quickly crushed the rebellion. However, small guerrilla bands continued to fight the Russians as their main forces fled into Ottoman territory leading to some fighting between the Russians and the Ottomans at the border. This fighting then triggered a full-scale war between Russia and the Ottomans, with the French encouraging the Ottomans to get involved in hopes of reshaping the European order in their favor. But the Ottomans were hoping for basically the same thing. They wished to regain much of the prestige they had lost since the long Turkish war. In particular, the Sultan was facing backlash against his efforts to further centralize the empire, and hoped that winning a great military victory could restore some of the prestige of the sultanate and allow him to finally kind of break the power of, you know, the Janissaries, local elites, all these folks that were arrayed against him. However, it was a major gamble as there was still the possibility that the resurgent Persian empire could again ally with the Russians and bring about a devastating two-front war, as they had attempted to do just over two decades previously. Still, Russia was in a desperate financial situation following the high cost of its involvement in the Seven Years' War, and the Ottomans had a superior navy in the Black Sea. With the start of this war, I have to note, the longest period of peace with European powers and the Ottomans had ever experienced had come to an end. Now, it should say a lot that the longest peace between Europeans and the Ottomans ever was 21 years. You know, it sounds a lot like the relationship between the Bulgarian empires and the Byzantines. I mean, if you go a couple years without a war, it's, it's a bit surprising. Now, getting into the war itself, the first actions were Russian Cossacks crossing into Ottoman territory as they pursued Polish rebels. Along the way, they massacred the population of the town of Balta. The next year, 1769, the Russians began their first major campaign of the war, taking an army down the Dniester River into Moldavia. On the way, they clashed with the Ottomans at the fortress of Khotin. There, the Ottomans, and particularly the Janissaries, took heavy casualties and fled, giving up the fortress to the Russians. By October, they had taken Yash, which is now in Romania, and was then the capital of Moldavia, and ultimately by November, they had taken Bucharest. The Russians moved out and sort of fanned out and took control of the remaining territories of Wallachia and Moldavia, taking Mavrokudatos, the guy doing all the reforms, captive. Now, while all this was going on, the Crimean Tatars were raiding Russian territory in Ukraine. 
But while they took many prisoners, this was not enough to substantially disrupt Russian operations to the south. Meanwhile, in the Caucasus, a Georgian king rebelled against the Ottomans and asked for Russian aid. The Russians agreed, but at the last moment withdrew the aid, deciding the best outcome would be for the Georgians to be bloodied by the Ottomans so the Russians could step in and easily take control of the region, regardless of who won. Now, despite this lack of support, the Georgians won their first battle against the Ottomans in April of 1770. Besides this, the Russians did engage in a failed siege of a fortress on the Black Sea coast and eventually sent a small force south of the Caucasus. Important because this was the first time Russian soldiers had ever gone south of that great mountain chain. Now on the seas, the Russian navy under British command had left a British port and made it to the southern tip of Greece, where it engaged with an Ottoman force, but the initial battles were indecisive. Still, the Ottomans had really not expected a Russian fleet to make it all the way there, and so they were largely caught off guard. But the true purpose of the Russian navy was actually to aid a planned revolt across Greece and Crete. Disillusioned with their experience under Venetian rule during the Kingdom of Morea, many Greeks now looked to establish an independent state under Russian influence and protection. This is a real sign of Russia's growing influence in the region. And at this point, the Russians were really competing more with Austria in the region as far as kind of who was going to have the most influence. The Venetians were really pushed out. Still, the Russian aid, which the Russian navy brought along, was a small fraction of what had been anticipated by the Greeks, a few hundred soldiers instead of the promised 10,000. Still, the so-called Orlov Revolt, after a Russian commander who helped plan it, went on as planned. However, in both the mainland and in Crete, it simply couldn't muster enough forces to take Ottoman fortresses, and it was snuffed out by the next year. The result, as usual, was carnage in the revolting regions as Ottoman mercenaries who had not been paid decided to take their payment in local plunder. But what about Bulgaria? What, where was Bulgaria? Were they revolting? Well, from the start of the war, Russian agents were operating in Bulgarian territory in the hopes of building a network of supporters who might rise up against the Ottomans. The Russian agents traveled all around Bulgaria, Wallachia, and Moldavia, distributing a letter from Empress Catherine, but at this point in the war, no major Bulgarian uprising had yet occurred, despite the presence of Russian troops just over the Danube. This was likely, in part, because during 1770, plague broke out around Ternovo, and by the next year, it had spread to Plovdiv, which had just experienced a massive fire the year before. So, along, the di along with the difficulties that the war brought, these additional hardships placed a lot of strain on much of Bulgaria and probably prevented any uprising. By July of 1770, the war was heating up. In the Aegean, the Russian and Ottoman fleets met, and the result was a stupendous victory for the Russians. It was the greatest defeat the Ottomans had suffered on the seas since Lepanto, over 200 years previously, and they lost 16 major ships and dozens of smaller ones. This Battle of Cheshma allowed the Russians to dominate the Aegean and triggered a massacre of Greeks in nearby Smyrna, also known as Izmir. On the same day as the Battle of Chesma, a largely Crimean Tatar force met a Russian army about half its size on the Larga River in Moldavia. Despite being outnumbered, the Russians scored a victory. Still, this was only a kind of secondary force. The main Ottoman army was joining with a far larger Tatar force to face the Russians again. 
Just weeks after the Battle of Larga, this larger Ottoman force of over 150,000 met the Russian army only about a third of its size on the Kagul River in southern Moldavia. When the two forces got near each other, the Russians went on the offensive, attacking the Ottoman portion of the army while the Tatar cavalry was busy and kind of away from the battlefield. The result was yet another rout of the Ottomans as they took heavy losses and fled the field. In the wake of the victory, the Russians quickly occupied Moldavia and took many fortresses in the region. Now, at this point, Russian success in the war was outpacing anything that was anticipated. An interesting diplomatic result was the evolving role of Great Britain in all of this. Now, initially, Great Britain had supported Russia because it needed a variety of raw materials from them to support its growing industry and its navy. However, once the Russians began to win, Britain held back support over concerns that Russia might actually take Constantinople and become a rival naval power in the Mediterranean. This is a pattern we'll see repeat itself until the very end of the Ottoman Empire, with Britain constantly seeking to kind of find balance there, wanting the Ottoman Empire to exist so the Russians wouldn't be able to take Constantinople, but not wanting the Ottomans to be too powerful themselves. Thus, Britain will always kind of hesitate to commit fully to an anti-Ottoman stance until newspapers and public opinion really become strong enough political forces to force it to do so. Then, just at this moment, when the war seemed to hardly be going worse for the Ottomans, they learned just how much worse it could get. Because at this point, a Mamluk who was running Egypt on behalf of the Ottomans effectively declared his independence. Next time, we'll see where this war is going to go. Will the Persians continue to stay out of it? What will be the result of Egypt's sudden declaration of independence? Will the new tiny Saudi state get involved? And most of all for us, what will befall the poor Bulgarians? Will they rise up against the Ottomans or will they wait for a better time? Don't miss it. Now, this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and I'll see you all in the next one.